Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. We're excited to have Ricardo, who's the CEO of Vertetic, a VR prosthetic medtech startup that's doing interesting things here. And pleasingly, he's actually in the studio, which is a novelty for us. Ricardo, thanks for trekking across town tonight. Thank you for having me. It's good to be out here while we can. What was the genesis for this that started Vertetic? It really started during my PhD. My research is about developing algorithms for prosthetics. And I needed a way to test these algorithms quickly and to be able to do it with anyone to evaluate different possibilities. So so early on, discussing with my supervisors, we were like, well, what can we do? And it was when virtual reality started to pick up and, and really get popular. When the first Oculus Rift came out, we were like, well, let's give it a try and see if we can simulate prosthetic use. And yeah, that's how it started with us looking at how can we simulate prosthetics. Can you break it down for us, just the hardware and software that's involved in Vertetic? What happens when someone would be interacting with your company? So in terms of hardware, we have wearable sensors that people would use normally in a prosthesis. So those are the sensors that measure your muscle signals to then move the prosthetic in one way or another. We take these sensors and we connect them to a virtual reality headset and through our software, we can simulate what the prosthetic would be doing if they had an actual prosthetic. So it's basically connecting these sensors, simulating a prosthetic in VR. So when you see your arm or the missing limb, you actually see a prosthetic and then you can use this virtual prosthetic to interact with objects and play games. What kind of games you got going on with VR in Vertetic? The current one that we have is Overcooked. It's a cooking game and the whole idea is just to get people to do tasks that normally they would do in their daily life. So something like cooking, just make it fun. And it's really just training how to grab things and drop them off and do this repeatedly to get used to the prosthetic. You guys might remember when iPads first came out, there were drawing tools where you could sketch and it would correct for a shaky hand. So you'd end up with a doodle that was like some kind of Picasso. I would imagine using a prosthetic, especially for the first little while, you could be quite clunky. You'd be knocking jars over and so forth. I'm interested to know, do you need to smooth for that? I would imagine there'd be a bit of difference between a VR experience of a limb and then when you actually have the limb, it's a bit different. Do you have to have a point of view on that? There's arguments both ways, whether you assist or whether you let people figure things out by themselves. A lot of people, when they start learning to use a prosthetic, can be quite frustrating. The approach that we're taking is to first simplifying the problem, where you don't simulate all the physical interactions, bumping into objects and all this sort of thing. It's just really the activation and grasping of an object with a prosthetic. That addresses the first thing, which is learning how to use those sensors rather than the prosthetic itself because it's a multi-step that you got to go through where, okay, how do I use my muscles that I still have in my arm to activate the sensors and then use those to control the hand and then interact with the real world. Crawl, walk, run. Exactly. We see it as beneficial to have those steps and eventually get people quickly into a prosthetic. So in the future, do you see yourself developing this package commercially so that people can learn in these steps? Is that the hope? Ideally, we would want this to be used both in clinics and at people's homes. So 
sort of becomes like a, a first step before getting their actual prosthesis. It takes a while for people to get a prosthesis, so this would be sort of like the training wheels for them before they actually get their own device. That was something I found quite interesting while I was going through your website. It mentioned that often these clinics are waiting six to 12 months for the funding for these limbs, and so the patients do get disengaged, but I understand there's also both mental and physical implications for such a long wait, and Vitetics really filling in a gap there. Can you explain what that looks like? The idea is that a lot of the research in rehabilitation and prosthetics in general is that the first few months are very critical because that's when the brain is reorganizing after the traumatic event. And the whole idea is that we intervene before those nerve pads and everything start to degrade and the muscles started to degrade as well. And it really is just about getting people to use those muscles and that part of the brain in a way that is significant to what they will be doing with the prosthesis. Because otherwise your muscles will degrade and you need to do rehab Given that losing part of your limb that gets increased in magnitude in how quickly it can degrade, plus the other implications. And what do doctors have to say about this? What were some of the first reactions to this idea? It's funny seeing people, especially not coming from a technology background, when we present it to them, they're sort of skeptical when they start seeing people play it and they're like, okay, it looks fine and so on. But once they start playing, they just completely forget about the outside world and start really getting into what it is like to use a prosthesis and some of the comments from clinicians that we talked to she helps amputees learn to use a prosthesis and she mentioned that sometimes she can get a bit frustrated because it is difficult to use a prosthesis and people struggle when learning to use it in the clinic and while she was trying to learn to use a prosthetic in VR she was having similar struggles as what her patients would have so when she finished playing and started talking to us she was like, well, I would have never been able to experience this, right? Because I still have my limb and there was no way for me to see it from the perspective of my patients. So it makes me feel that I could be a bit more patient with them. It also has really interesting implications for the people who practice these kinds of professions as well. If people are interested in this, are they just playing it out if they're a bit of a VR nerd or even work in the industry and uh, maybe not as skeptical as some of those people that you mentioned? How can they get involved? How can they give it a try? The easiest would be either through our website or contact contact us directly through our email info we've been speaking to the ceo of vertetic ricardo garcia rosas thanks for coming in it sounds like an awesome piece of work thank you it's good being here this is a podcast from triple r an independent media organization in melbourne australia triple r is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding if you would like to financially support triple r by donating or becoming a subscriber hit up rrr.org.au to find out how we're very excited to be talking about traffic. Well, certainly I am, because there's too much of it. The world's first project that launched this week, I believe, through University of Melbourne's Australian Integrated Multimodal Ecosystem is bringing together a bunch of people that could probably solve this. Peak Hour Urban Technologies, Victorian Department of Transport, Telstra through AWS. There's a big team on it. And we're now joined by AIMS Director, Professor Majid Savi. Majid, thanks for taking time to have a chat with us. Good evening, and thank you for having me. Tell me why you hate traffic. Why is this your thing that you're working on? This is very important, as you can imagine. You know, everybody needs to know when they're going somewhere, how long does it take to go from A to B, and basically being able to have some prediction, an accurate prediction, going to uh, have a major impact on how we operate our transport system. I was wondering, why has this not been solved before? We probably do have the tech somewhere around. What have been previous efforts in terms of mapping what's going on with traffic and where is it at, and what's the baseline that you've been working to surpass? You're absolutely right. There have been lots of effort to tackle this issue of you know predicting traffic speed and things like that. But because it is so complex, and for example, Melbourne Network has over 26 thousand links 
is not quite easy, as you can imagine. So what did the artificial intelligence, you know, the team that we put together, you know, for the first time, they managed to uh, look at all this data and patterns and being able to predict, you know, what is happening on road network with extreme accuracy. I mean, that's a good thing about it. Some other methods uh, used by others, they have at best maybe 70% accuracy, but this one is over 95%. is quite amazing in that sense. Would most traffic happen the same way most days or most weeks in almost exactly the same way? We know from seeing how we're being tracked through our phones and devices and so forth that yep. we're mostly in the same places at the same time each day or of each week. Is that most of what you have to account for? What's the scale of the variation, for example? The scale of variation is quite huge. You may experience some up and down when you're going down the road, but because you know, our system become more congested as more people using road network, things become much more unpredictable. And one small behavior of one driver, such as slow down a bit, it, it has major impact. And we need to have a way to understand all of this that can happen all over the network. As I said, we have 26,000 links and something happening in one location can impact other locations as well. So having this kind of technology is very important in order to be able to understand and capture them quite accurate and also very quickly. In some methodology may take five, six hours to understand what is happening, but this is real time, what is happening in fraction of a second to understand it. How have we dealt with this kind of mapping in the past? How have we been able to see these connections without such advanced technology? As I mentioned, if you guys traveling on Eastern Freeway or Monash Freeway, you look at just the sign that's showing travel time. Always are pretty much wrong. Then they show it's going to be green and you're going a kilometer further down and you say, oh my God, there's a huge congestion. You know what happened? That just shows you it's not easy. It's very complex. And if it comes to arterial roads, you know, Hardwell Street, things like that, even, even much more complex because, you know, a bus drive we can create some traffic around it by just you know, pulling over and picking up some passengers. So it's very complex and getting more complex because our network become more popular by, by people using it by different things, you know, bicycles and you know, motorbikes and other things. So understanding what is happening is not quite easy. And this technology is mind-blowing in terms of the way that understand patterns predict them to few hours ahead of the time, which is great. Now, even Google cannot do this. Google, you can look at it right now and ask Google, I want to go from Huddle to uh, Swanson Street. 8 o'clock in the morning, I'm going to tell you between 20 minutes to 40 minutes. There is a big range, which is not good for you. It's useless. What I'm going to do with 20 minutes, inaccurate. But this methodology is going to tell you, it's going to take you 21 minutes. and going to be 95% accurate. Speaking of time, I understand that the project is really designed to optimise those traffic signals for your road users up to three hours ahead. When it comes to forecasting, how likely do you think that's going to be in the near future? This could be used to optimise the transport system. And this technology, we have done it with partnership with the Department of Transport. And it is ready to be implemented. But as you can imagine, it's going to be a lot of discussion. How are we going to use it? What is the best way to start using it? But it's going to be several ways you know, this information can be used. It could be just uh, consumed by the people, ordinary people, and deciding where they want to go by freight industry, city logistics, bus operator, and definitely by road operator in Vic Road Department of Transport. Um, so that's the obvious way to go forward. If theoretically places like Vic Roads were using the technology to optimise traffic signals, keep things flowing and keep things flowing calmly, what do you predict the implications for safety will be with a better flowing system, whether it is drivers or pedestrians or, say, bicycles or motorbikes? More efficiency and a less stop and go going to be safer traffic for everybody, including vulnerable road users, bicycle and motorbikes and the like. Earlier studies showed that if we use this kind of technology, we can reduce the congestion 10-15%, even up to 20% in some locations. And this is huge 
sort of, you know, benefit for Melbourne because when you build massive infrastructure, you cannot maybe get up to 20%. So this just shows how much we can get our system be utilized more effectively if we are smart and using this cutting-edge artificial intelligence technology that we have. I'd be interested to know what some of the systems were that you had to mesh together and maybe the different data sources to even to bring this to life as a proof of concept or however you developed it. What were some of the weird kind of APIs that you've had to come up with to figure out these different data sets, richness of data, missing data? What was that process like? Or are you just in the process of doing that? What we launched on Monday is not even a pilot. It's an actual implementation. It's ready mm. kind of thing. So we spent a lot of time, about a year, just to make sure uh, evaluated evaluate it properly. As Melbourne University job was to evaluate this as a sort of, you know, unbiased partner, make sure that everything that is predicted is correct. So we have done that. But in terms of data, we look at so many data sets, but a lot of it, the good thing is Victorian Department of Transport has lots of good data that we are very lucky to be able to use them. And even without consuming some of the more sophisticated kind of data, we still could get a very good prediction. So that's a good thing about it. Even with existing infrastructure, we have this uh, possibility in front of us to be able to predict what is happening on a road network. And as more data come to the picture, this gets better. That's, again, one of the strengths of this artificial intelligence. And it also has self-learning. So if you change something, tomorrow you open a notice link and totally change the pattern of traffic. This system just needs two to three days and it gets going again. It has self-learning built into it, which is amazing. One thing that would be exciting for me, I catch a lot of public transport by preference. I think use less cars if you can. Dynamic timetables for public transport. Again, I was sitting in one that said, theoretically, a 20-minute trip north-south on Punt Road, and it took an hour because of football crowds. But that'd be amazing. We set them up based on a traffic standard. There will be about this much traffic, or I'm not even sure how timetables are designed around traffic. I can't imagine it's too sophisticated. But yeah, dynamic public transport scheduling. Absolutely. I mean, having a dynamic timetable, having a dynamic route. You don't need to be having a fixed bus route. It could change around the traffic, and that's one of the beauty of this technology. If there's some congestion, send the bus around and if we could communicate this stuff with through mobile with people again we are sitting on a gold mine we can think about many ways to consume this kind of technology and optimize the transport system and everybody is carrying a smartphone and this is a massive opportunity for all of us warren was just talking about dynamic public transport timetables where else could this be applied like could we use this to predict internet traffic to a particular servers and things like that can this be applied in other areas rather than just road traffic yeah absolutely no artificial intelligence is very good if you know which one you use and which one you develop. They're very good in understanding patterns, so they've been used in biomed, in medical research and, and so on and so forth, and definitely this kind of technology that we come up with it is very good in understanding the stochastic or very chaotic pattern, because traffic is very chaotic. You look at the Street, if I show you the traffic pattern over one year, you would be amazed how much variation it has. So for human to understand it is quite difficult, but for machine learning it's very simple. They understand this kind of pattern if you fed them with, uh, with enough data. How many data points is it dealing with? Because I imagine something like the weather would have an effect on it, and that's not necessarily just about a car accident on the road or something like that, but that just has an overall effect on the entire system, right? Absolutely. Weather is one of the things we consider in this framework. But just give you some sketch for Melbourne now, we could use up to you know, 100,000 data points every five minutes. This is amazing technology because it consumes all of this data up quite real time and predict everything up to three hours quite real time so that's the power of it and we have spent a lot of time and one of the role of uh, partner uh, AWS uh, Amazon Web Service which 
providing the cloud solution that allows you to do this kind of scaling. And the peak hour technology that developed the core technology, the technology is quite real time. And that's the interesting thing about it. I was really curious to hear what a rollout would look like and whether this technology can be deployed on mass across multiple cities at once, or would it need to be a city by city thing with lots of customizations? Because it has self-learning, we actually look at how quick it learns. For example, if you pick this up and drop it in Sydney after five days, it's going to predict as good as Melbourne. There is very quick in understanding pattern and this self-learning built into the technology is very important is quite good. So it's very quick in understanding changes and adopt itself to predict. This has been absolutely fascinating. Where can people read more about this traffic related stuff? If they're interested, if they look at AIM webpage, as you mentioned, Australian Integrated Multimodal Ecosystem or LinkedIn, they can find lots of articles and white papers and other documents that we post there and then they can get more information or contact myself. I would be very happy to talk to people. Awesome. We've been speaking with the Director of Ames from University of Melbourne, Professor Majid Savi. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me and for asking a very good question. No worries. Thank you. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.